You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn once again to Genesis chapter 4. We turn our attention to the Word this morning. If you've got kids that are a part of the kids class, they're invited to join Miss Carolyn in the back for their time today if you so choose. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in the Word this morning. I pray that you would teach us and guide us, increase our faith in who you are, increase our, our knowledge and wisdom of how you desire for us to live out your Word today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn our attention to uh, the conclusion of the story of Cain and and uh, his descendants. You'll remember uh, in the past week, past two weeks, we've talked about the sinful act of Cain. That after being warned by God, after God identified the fact that there was a heart issue with Cain, specifically in how he sacrificed, that that he warned Cain about going down that road. That if he continued down that road, that sin was going to seize him and control him and we said that ultimately Cain denied that opportunity to escape uh, in the same way the New Testament says that when temptation comes, there's always a way of escape. Cain denies that opportunity and instead runs um, headstrong right into uh, his sin. Uh, he, he commits murder against his brother, and then when God confronts him about that, he denies those actions. Uh, different than his, than his father Adam, he doesn't try to explain his actions or justify his actions he just simply denies his actions um, and denies responsibility for even being accountable for it. Uh, says that he's not responsible for Abel. And yet, as we saw last week, the New Testament over and over and over communicates to us that we are responsible for each other. That, that we're to, um, to take responsibility. We're to meet the needs of others. We're to help each other kill sin. We're to carry each other's burdens. We're to celebrate the joys of each other. And we're to, to comfort each other in the midst of our sorrows and uh, Cain had missed that responsibility within his family, and we saw how God punished Cain. Um, he, he, he questions him, gives him opportunity for confession, but uh, because of Cain's refusal to do that, God banishes him. Uh, God provides safety for the rest of Adam and his offspring, says, Cain, if, if you're not concerned about what you've done, and if you're not concerned about seeing that you're responsible to be your brother's keeper, then you have no business being a part of this family and, and moves uh, Cain along and, and banishes him to be a wanderer. 
uh, curses the ground. Remember, Cain was, was a farmer by trade. That's what he knew. We said a lot of times sin will strip us of our, of our dreams and, and strip us of our livelihood. That, that many a man specifically has seen his, his job taken from him because of sin. Uh, that he's disqualified himself, specifically in the context of ministry, because of sinful choices. And, and Cain has forfeited everything that he knows in regards to being a farmer and instead is banished to be a wanderer. We concluded by saying that, that we have a responsibility to be like Adam, to, to be disciplined by God when necessary, and to respond in faith. Adam gets a similar type punishment, turns to his wife and expresses faith in what God has said. Cain instead says, he says to God, my, my punishment's greater than I can bear. Like, this isn't fair. Still not, still not registering with Cain what he's done. So God, even in his grace, puts a sign upon Cain that will protect him moving forward. So we come now to Cain and, and, and what happens to him uh, after uh, this discipline from God. And then we see uh, his descendants and what happens to them. What we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is, is essentially two genealogies. We're going to see the genealogy of Cain. We're going to see the genealogy of Seth. Uh, we're going to see that Seth ultimately takes the place of Abel in his mother's eyes. Um, and becomes the representative for the godly seed. You'll remember in Genesis 3.15, the prophecy is, is that God is going to create two seeds, a godly seed and an ungodly seed, a, a seed that sides with Satan and a seed that ultimately is rescued back and sides with God. Um, and these two individuals become kind of representative of uh, those, two, those two lines of the ungodly and the godly. In your notes, I want you to understand some purposes for genealogies. Now, these aren't the only purposes, but these are three quick ones that I wrote down in my study this week. Um, why we shouldn't just breeze right over genealogies, why they're important, and why we shouldn't simply skip over them. Number one, our purpose number one, is that they display likeness between offspring and ancestor. Oftentimes, genealogies are used to show likeness between offspring and ancestor. They're, they're used to show us that you act like your family a lot of times. And, and this genealogy, I believe, this morning is used that way. We're going to see that it starts with Cain, who murders his brother, and then we conclude with his, his genealogy, looking at his, his, ancestor, or his offspring, Lamech, who also is guilty of something similar, but, but takes it even further in his attitude and expression about it. Um, oftentimes you, you maybe have stepped back and examined your life and realized that some of the things that are uh, not holy about you are the same things that were not holy about your parents and maybe your grandparents, that oftentimes we act like our family, and oftentimes we need to be reminded that we have to overcome those sinful flaws of our family. Um, I, I can express to you just in, in, in thinking through uh, my ancestors, specifically my dad. My, me and my dad are a lot alike, a lot alike. Things that are that are good about my dad are things that, that God has gifted me with as well. The, the sinful flaws of my dad are things that I have to work to overcome as well. And so genealogies are oftentimes used as a reminder for that, that if we're not careful, we will act like our family. And we see that Cain's descendants, Cain's offspring, do exactly that. Purpose number two, oftentimes genealogies are used to propel the story forward by linking events together. They're oftentimes used to propel the story forward by linking events together. So we're going to skip ahead pretty quickly to get to, to Noah. 
most conservative estimates, Noah, Noah and the account of the flood is going to happen some 16 to 2,000 years after creation. Um, and so Moses, in his writings, he's not going to spend a lot of time talking about all these people in between. And so a lot of times genealogies are used to connect the next story that's going to be discussed. And so we're going to see how Noah connects through these genealogies, but we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the people in between. And so they're used to to propel the story forward so we don't get too bogged down. Um, But it also shows us how the next story, the next group of characters connect to the previous characters. And then purpose number three, they are used for the legitimacy of an individual and his rightful claim to office. The legitimacy of an individual and his rightful claim to office. Genealogies uh, allow someone to properly, legally claim rightful office. Most of the time when it comes to kingship in scripture. That they can trace their lineage to an individual that, that qualifies them to be king. We know from the New Testament that, that Jesus' genealogy is traced back through this line to Adam and Eve to show that he is the son of man, that he is the prophesied one in Genesis 3.15. And so the genealogy is used for that purpose. So oftentimes to connect ancestor to offspring and their actions, to propel the story forward, and then oftentimes to give legitimacy to someone's claim to an office. And we see um, a little bit of all three of those in the case of the genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth. In your notes here, the wife of Cain, an apologetic nightmare for some people. Um, I told you that this is a point of discussion amongst critics, that when, when the validity of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture is questioned, oftentimes this account is brought up. How do we as Christians explain Cain and his wife and this people group supposedly that he is fearful of when he discusses things with God? Um, we're going to talk in a minute about why this is important, but just to kind of set the stage. One, I believe that Cain married one of his many sisters. We know from Genesis chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years And he died. So we know from Scripture that Adam lived a long time and in the midst of living a long time had many sons and daughters. We also know that Adam was 130 years old when he had Seth. Now, there's no description here, but there there may have been children that were born prior to Seth. Uh, There's nothing that would hinder that from being the case. And so we discussed that while Cain and Abel were the focal points of Genesis 4, that it doesn't prohibit there being multiple siblings that, that they're also um, in discussion with, that they're also in fellowship with. We're also not told the age of Cain and Abel. Most would say that Cain is already married at this point, right? Like, it would be very hard to get your sister to marry you if you've already killed her brother. So odds are that they were already married, um, which meant that maybe other siblings were already married and already were having kids, which helps explain kind of the, the population explosion that was starting to happen. Um, Cain's fear of retaliation makes most sense in the context of family versus strangers in another land. See, some would want to suggest, well, well, this is proof that, that everybody doesn't come from Adam and Eve, that there was a, a whole other race that God created that was in this land of Nod. 
And they want to speculate that Cain found his wife there and that he was fearful in going there that these people would kill him. But the fact is, is that Cain has killed his brother. It makes most sense that he would be scared of family wanting to retaliate versus strangers wanting to retaliate. Um, that the, the understanding there is that he's fearful that his family is going to be upset with him. Strangers most likely aren't going to care. If anything, they're going to be scared of him, not really seeking to retaliate against him. Now, this is important, too, because this kind of it takes scripture from being a Sunday school story to being uh, historical. OK, so this this point that I want to share with you, conservative, I'm going to give you the conservative estimate and then the the more liberal estimate about how many people are potentially on the earth at this time based on population opportunity. OK, there is potentially by the time Adam dies. So Adam dies when he's 930 years old. By the time he dies, the conservative estimate is that there is over 100,000 people on the earth at this time. As he's had kids, they've grown up to marriageable age, they've gotten married, they've started having kids. All of his kids are having kids, and their kids are having kids over the course of this 930-year period. The conservative estimate is over 100,000. That's... That's only allowing him to have a small amount of kids and only a portion of them growing up and get married and only a portion of them growing up and getting married. If we allow for the more likelihood that all of his kids were growing up and getting married and all of their kids were growing up and getting married, it's very well possible that it pushes the number closer to a million people on the earth over the course of 930 years. And you say, well, how's that possible? Well, you know from multiplication, right, the, the standards of multiplication that you've, you've all heard that I could give you $10,000 a day for 30 days or I could give you a penny on the first day and then double it every day. And by the end of the 30 days, you were smarter to start with the penny because you're multiplying it versus just adding. And that's what we have here, the concept of multiplication, that very quickly the population of the earth grows big time. So it makes sense that Cain would have been fearful because his family wasn't mom, dad, me, and Abel, and now it's just me, and so I'm worried about mom and dad. It's There could have been a lot of people already on the earth at that time when he committed that sin. Taking it even further, uh, estimates are that there were probably 7 billion people by the time the flood came. Um, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's crazy to think about because we think in terms of, well, there wasn't that long of time for people to have kids. And so we're talking about a small population when God brings judgment. Um, there was a lot of people on the earth. Now, again, those are, those are estimates. Doesn't really shape or change our theology, but just gives us a better historical understanding of how this story makes sense. Why Cain would be fearful of some individuals. Um, moving forward, and we're going to talk a minute about, again, why this is important. Uh, Cain settles in the land of Nod. Uh, Genesis 4 tells us this is possibly in defiance against God and his punishment. You'll remember that God has banished him and banished him to a life of wandering. So it may be that Cain says, I'm not going to be that type of individual. I'm going to set up camp and I'm going to establish myself. And what we're going to see through his descendants is that Cain ultimately makes his own paradise with as many comforts as possible. The idea of this land of Nod, it's, it means wandering. Uh, so evidence here is that it did not become a great settlement long term based on the name it developed. Odds are it was not called the land of Nod when Cain moved that direction, 
right? Moses is writing in the future, and so he's telling you he settled in the land of Nod. Remember that place that we call the land of wandering? That's where Cain went, obviously becoming not really an established settlement because it became known as a place of wandering. But it may have been an act of defiance by Cain here towards God. Cain wanders with no peace, which is... You know, we talk about this not being our home and that we're, we're aliens here, we're, we're sojourners here, we're, we're, um, we're waiting for our ultimate home. Cain wanders on this earth with no peace. The picture in scripture is that Abraham has a similar life, right? He, he's wandering with, with no home as well. But the book of Hebrews points us into a totally different direction as far as their outlook on their future goes. In Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 8 through 10, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So even God calls Abraham out to be virtually a wanderer. His destiny and Cain's destiny are are distinctly different. Cain wanders this earth with no peace and with no hope. Abraham journeys through the promised land, never really gets to settle down in the promised land, right? Ends up having to go to Egypt because of famine. But ultimately, he's got a heavenly perspective where he's looking to a city that's been promised to him that has foundations that's built by God. Some people would want to speculate how in the world could Cain build a city at this time with a lack of technology. The term city here is is used as a walled settlement. So let's don't let's don't lose sight of this and think that he went and built the city of Atlanta for his descendants to live in. Right. He's not building skyscrapers and and uh, football domes. And, you know, he's not building that type of city. Most likely he's still scared, even with God's promise that no one's going to lay a hand on him. He's probably still scared and build simply a fortified city, which again would not have been necessary back home, right? So in terms of city, it becomes necessary because of fearful, fearful feelings about the outsiders. Back home, Adam and Eve, there's no, there's no safety issue. There up to this point had been no murder. There's no reason for walls. There's no reason for a city. We can all dwell together openly under the stars in tents. We don't need that safety. So this is another example of Cain's fear. Again, he's the unsafe one, right? He's the one that is, has violated the safety of everybody, but he demonstrates fear here by having to go and build a city. He feels like he needs protection. Now, in your notes here, why is the identity of Cain's wife so important? Why is it so important? Um, first of all, why is, it, why is it disputed? Why is her identity disputed? To say that Cain married his sister draws up typically two two issues from critics. One, what about the laws against incest? Two, what about the dangers that come with incest? Right? So the, the reproductive act there with, with siblings, people that are close together, typically produces children that have birth defects. Okay? So how does how does Cain get away with this? How do early mankind get away with this? Okay, we know that Scripture has laws about this. So I'm speculating that most everybody in our groups this morning came to the conclusion that he married his sister. What would our response be to those that would say, well, God forbids it? How, how, how would God 
be justified in setting them up with a situation where they have to break a law to reproduce. Any thoughts on how to answer a skeptic when it comes to, hey, I think he married his wife. Well, then the next question is, well, God forbids that. Okay? Okay? Right. Yep. So, so on the issue of the, the danger, the genetic code issue, um, at this point, you know, most creation, uh, creation viewing scientists would say that the genetic code is not tainted at this point, that it would be the equivalent of drinking from a river at its source, like up in the mountains where the water is pure, or drinking it in the middle of New York City where it's run down and picked up every piece of trash on its way, that at the beginning, the genetic code would have been very pure, that there wouldn't have been the type of uh, physical deformities coming from it. And honestly, I read about what causes that and would love to explain it to you this morning, but really did not have the time to understand it myself. But it really has to do with when the husband and wife come together, they're sharing genetic information. A lot of times when they're not close relatives, it cancels out and the better gene overseeds the the poor gene but when you've got siblings they're coming in with a very similar genetic code and they don't have the good code to override the bad code so that's like the that's like the kids version of of what we're talking about here okay so some of you understand that better and you're like what a poor explanation of that but that's the best i got this morning okay so the genetic issue was not an issue at that time i believe it becomes an issue down the road which is where the law becomes uh put into place for the children of israel it's also not unheard of that God's laws that kind of fall into this category change and are altered, right? So we don't, we don't say that God's moral law changes, right? Like it's always against his moral law to murder. That's not something that evolves over time. But when it comes to things that they were allowed to eat, right? Like that was given and then that was taken away in the New Testament. There was freedom given back in the things that, that, that God's people were allowed to eat. So this would be an example of a law that was not in place being put in place down the road for a good reason, that the genetic code is now becoming distorted to to purify my race, my, my people that I've called out to make sure that they continue on. This law has to be put in place. Same reason why he says you can't marry outside the race of Israel, because he wants to keep them pure spiritually as much as he wants to keep them pure physically. That if he allows other nations to come in and marry with the children of Israel, they bring their gods. So siblings bring their bad genetic code. People outside of Israel bring their gods and the whole people group becomes distorted and tainted. Okay, so those laws were put in place for good purposes. Um, so that's how we can kind of discuss and handle those that would dispute that identity. Uh, but why is it so important? Why is it important that we see Cain as marrying his wife? So to me, it's not really optional. It's not you can believe that he married his wife or you can believe that he married a, a woman from an old, a whole separate people group. It's important to see that he marries his sister because it's so important to our understanding of the gospel. OK, it's so important to our understanding of the gospel um, the focal point of Scripture, all through Scripture, is God saving the descendants of Adam through Christ. The implication from Scripture is that only the seed of Adam can be saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 22, 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, so the focal point of Scripture is always the idea that God is going to save the descendants of Adam. If we allow Cain to marry some woman that's a descendant of another people group, it breaks down how the gospel has been communicated to us, that Adam is the head of the human race, that everybody comes from Adam and Eve, that they're all born into sin, and the only way to be saved from that is to be reborn into the family of Christ. Right? So that conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, you're, you're not okay because you come from Adam. You need to be born again. You need to inherit a new nature, Jesus talks about there. Uh, so Adam serves as the human race as the first man. To allow that Cain marries uh, a woman from another people group would really call into the question the reliability of Scripture. Because in Acts 17, verse 26, Paul alludes to the fact that we all come from Adam and Eve. He says, uh, and he, talking about God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then back in 1 Corinthians verse 15, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay, so it's important to see that Cain's wife comes from Adam and Eve because it's so important to how Scripture communicates the gospel. That we all come from Adam and Eve. We all inherit the sin nature. None of us can be good on our own to earn God's righteousness, to earn his favor. And that the only way to be fixed from that is to have Christ intercede for us. Okay, so Cain's wife comes from Adam and Eve. It's a sister. Maybe, maybe a niece. Maybe maybe he didn't get married first. Maybe some other siblings got married first. They had a child that grew up and he, he picked a cousin or a niece or, or whatever it ended up being. But it's a relative. It's somebody that came from Adam and Eve. And it's important not just for this story but for our understanding of the gospel. So the implication here in your notes, the identity of Cain's wife is important for gospel purposes. The identity of Cain's wife is important for gospel purposes. <clears throat> we are all in need of the same salvation. All right, nobody can claim that they came from, from Cain and his wife and therefore did not inherit Adam's sin nature. <coughs> so it's important for gospel purposes. And then secondly, the identity of Cain's wife is important for missional purposes. It's important for missional purposes. We all came from Adam, meaning we are all saved the same way. Okay, so we send people overseas. We send people to other nations because we believe they came from the same source that we did. We believe they inherited the same sin nature that we inherited. We believe that they cannot do anything good to right themselves with God just like we can. Therefore, they are in need of the same Jesus Christ and his saving power as we are. Okay, So the, the, the identity of Cain's wife is, is a point that maybe we would glaze over real quick just as Christians. But because skeptics attack it, it makes this passage really relevant for us to know how to dialogue about it with a skeptic. 
And it has, it has importance for us because of how it affects the gospel. To, to move away from seeing Cain's wife as a descendant of Adam and Eve would move us away from the teaching of the gospel. All right, secondly here in your notes, the life of Cain. He leaves a worldly legacy behind, a worldly legacy. What we see here back in Genesis 4, we see a lot of increase take place. Okay, so we started with Adam and Eve. To our knowledge, we come to Cain and Abel. We don't have any other people being discussed. And then we see a lot of things start happening very quickly. We see the population increases. We see technology increases. We see culture increasing. It's important to note here that God allows prosperity despite Cain's sin. This is another testimony to the grace of God. Skeptics want to highlight God's wrath in the Old Testament and fail to see time and time again God's grace. The fact that Cain's allowed to live, the fact that Cain's descendants are allowed to prosper, even in the midst of the ground being cursed, that they're allowed to prosper, this is what we call common grace. It's grace that God extends to all of his creation, to all of mankind, regardless if they're saved, regardless if they're in a relationship with him. He extends common grace here to Cain and his descendants. What we find here in his, in his life is that he leaves an, or he uh, produces an, an intelligent heritage. Number one, an intelligent heritage. In reading through this passage about his descendants and some of the things that they uh, develop and engage in, we find that while man is brought low morally by sin, his, intelligent, his intelligence remains intact. Okay, So what we find from this genealogy is that man is degrading morally, that there are, are sinful things that are, that, are, that are growing in the life of mankind. But we also see a highly intelligent being here. This is a far cry from evolution. Okay? Far cry from evolution where mankind starts out really just, just stupid and dumb and, and doesn't know how to do things and has to learn and grow and develop over thousands and thousands and maybe even millions of years to get to the point where it can do some of the things that we do today. Instead, what we find here from Scripture is that right off the bat, mankind is capable of doing these things and doing it at a high level. When you talk from a secular standpoint, from a scientific standpoint, scientists view Stone Age moving into civilized age when you see evidence of things like urbanization, agriculture, animal domestication, and metallurgy. Okay, so when you start to see these things happening, that's when, when secular scientists would say we've moved from Stone Age to Civilized Age. I think it's important to note that God in his inspiration, even if the children of Israel didn't need this at this time, God writes it into his inspired word that these things were happening right off the bat with Adam's descendants. Okay, we don't have Neanderthal man who's, who's grunting and trying to learn a language and trying to create fire. We have intelligent beings, intelligent beings that are taking the materials of the earth and subduing them, bringing them into submission to mankind, whether it's through instruments, whether it's through uh, uh, instruments for music, whether it's through instruments for uh, uh, working the ground, potentially weapons. When we talk about the iron and the bronze, you've got mankind showing his authority over the animals with one of Cain's descendants domesticating them and then keeping livestock. We see an intelligent race here from the very beginning. I think Moses also, so that part's for us, I think. Moses writes it for the children of Israel to show them that the source of musical instruments and 
um, weapons and, and those type of things that come from the metal use, those things came from human beings and not from gods. Okay? The belief at that time was that individual gods came down and gifted some of these things to human beings. And so they took them and used them and developed them. Remember, the children of Israel are moving into the promised land where there are tons of people that believe in tons of gods. And to give the children of Israel a foundation about where these things come from, Moses writes in such a way so that they can see mankind was intelligent from the beginning and developed these things in response to God saying, take the earth and subdue it. That there weren't gods who came down and gifted these things to them. Now, obviously, it was all sourced in God, but mankind developed these things as mankind was supposed to do when God said, be faithful, be fruitful, and subdue the earth. Secondly, so not just an intelligent heritage, but Cain leaves a worldly heritage behind as well. While we read this genealogy and see great advancements, they're building a city, they're building uh, a culture, they're developing music, they're developing livelihoods, potentially developing an army as they, as they construct and use these metals. That while there are great advancements, the answer to restlessness is not to build roots here. And that seems to be Cain's response to God's punishment, and it seems to be what he passed on to his children. That we've rejected God, we've been, we've been turned away from God because we chose that. Our response is to make the best life possible here and to build our roots here and enjoy life to its fullest here. Now, the things that are described here, music and, and, and the metal use, this stuff's not bad, right? Like, it's not bad, but it seems to be used for ungodly purposes or at least not used in a way to glorify God. It seems to be used in response to, to the banishment for Cain it's let's build our paradise here. If we forfeited things over there, let's build the best life we can right here. It's a reminder to us as believers that we look forward to a different type of city. It's a reminder to us in looking at this that as we look around us, what we see around us is not all too different from what we see right here. The type of development, the type of... Um, value placed on the type of things described here is still very similar to what we see in our culture today. As Christians, as believers, we're to be reminded that we don't build our roots here. We don't build our roots here. That We're looking forward to a heavenly city as Abraham, that, that our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says in Philippians 3. Cain leaves a worldly heritage. Number three, a godless heritage, a godless heritage. There's, there's moral disorder that, that's seen here in the genealogy of Cain. The depravity of man is seen in the continual growth of sin. In just a couple of chapters, Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right, The behavior of Cain's descendants leads to a condition on the earth that warrants God's global judgment upon it. It's, 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 it's telling for us to, to, to identify what's going on here as a sign of what's to come in Genesis 6, and then even in the future for us in Matthew twenty four thirty seven. 
as Cain separates and begins to build a society, he builds a society that, that brings God's judgment and serves as a warning for us today in Matthew twenty four thirty seven. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what we see here with Cain's heritage, what he's building, what he's developing in his family, is ultimately what leads to the punishment with the flood. Cain's city is filled with pride and arrogance. Back in Genesis 4, his, his siblings that, uh, not his siblings, his, his offspring that were given here, uh, Jabel, Jabel represents prosperity here. He represents the prosperity of the city. It says that, let's see here. In verse 30, Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Um, what we're going to see as we move through the book of Genesis is that livestock is always tied to the prosperity of an individual. That their, their wealth, their riches is understood in their livestock. Uh, there's been some speculation here by commentators that this may be a sign that they were developing the habit of, of eating meat prior to God's provision. We said that Abel would have been raising the sheep and, and whatnot for clothing purposes, and that may be the case here, but there's some speculation that the evil of Cain and, and his descendants began to venture into that realm of, of, of eating the meat. Maybe, maybe not. Um, next, we've got Jubal, who represents pleasure, who represents pleasure as he develops music for entertainment. Again, not bad things here. These aren't bad things. But we're going to see that they're not being used for God's purposes. And then lastly, Tubal-Cain represents power. He's the metal worker. And while he may not have been the one to develop weapons, we know that weapons come very soon. That, that these, uh, the, the, the knowledge and the intelligence that he demonstrates through manipulating the metals will very quickly turn into a weapon of destruction. Um, that death will be used through this intelligence. There's some implication for us from this section of, of this passage. Much like today, their worldly pursuits left no room for God. Much like today, their worldly pursuits left no room for God. Well, how do we know that? Like, are we just speculating that these people weren't worshiping God? I think that Moses gives us implication in the last part of chapter 4, which we're going to look at extensively next week. But it says in verse 26, to Seth also was a son born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The distinction here is that Seth's descendants worship God. Cain's descendants don't. And so what we have are people, in, in, in our understanding, living the American dream. They're people with jobs that are, that are intelligent, that are subduing the earth. They're doing half of what God has commanded to do. They're subduing the earth. They're manipulating the earth. They're using it for great purposes, entertainment purposes, productive purposes. <coughs> they're doing it absent from God. Remember we said with Cain and Abel that Adam had taught his kids, subdue the earth, but set aside time to come back to God and recognize that he's the source of all of it. That Adam had taught his boys 
to come back to God with sacrifices, with offerings of the fruit of their labor. We have no indication here that Cain had passed that on to his kids. They're, they're manipulating the earth. They're subduing the earth. They're living a lot like people that we go to work with today that are building their roots here, establishing their identity here, using the earth for good purposes, but doing it absent from God. These people had become rich. They had become entertained. They had also become protected. But as Psalm 127.1 tells us, their prosperity was empty without God. Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This is the picture we have of Cain and his descendants. They built. They built without the Lord. They built in vain. Because here's the thing. Everything that they build, everything they develop, gets washed away with the flood. Like their, their, their legacy, what they left behind, is destroyed in the flood because they built it absent from God. Which brings us to the, to the last section here that, that I want to point out to us this morning from Genesis 4 here is the strife of Cain. He passes on conflict to his kids. <coughs> it's a pattern of vengeance versus forgiveness. The one individual in Cain's legacy here that we get more information about is um, his descendant Lamech. It says in verse 19 that Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other, Zillah. And then we skip down to verse 23. It says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. A couple of a couple of things to point out here about Lamech's life. Number one, Lamech's issue with marriage. Lamech's issue with marriage. This becomes the first recorded incident of bigamy, which is taking two wives, which you could call it polygamy if that's easier to remember. Um, he, he's the first individual recorded. Now, that's not to say that he's the first individual ever that did it. He's the first individual that deviates from God's description of marriage given in the Garden of Eden. That man and woman come together and become one flesh. Here, Lamech's reinterpreting it and saying, me and you and you come together to become one flesh. There's some indication here as to the motivation in the names of these two women uh, their names are tied to physical pleasure and attraction. So it's, it's possible, it's, it's, it's most likely, that his, his motivation in taking two wives was, was a motivation of lust. That he alters what he knows about marriage to satisfy his human desire. There's probably also a motivation of power here. At this point, there's no government. We don't have any indication of kings and, and governmental leaders. It would have been clan run, most likely where you would have had an individual who was kind of responsible for his family. Um, and, and so most likely Lamech sees this as an opportunity to expand his power quicker, that, that he's got one wife who can only have one child at a time. How much more power can I have if I take two wives and have two kids at one time? And so he begins to build his family 
uh, with a motivation of power, with a motivation of lust. Number two, we see Lamech's glorification of sin as well. He's boasting about this crime that he's committed. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Boasting and singing and writing poetry about it. His violence is seen as a badge of honor. What we see here is Lamech describing a a feeling of invincibility. That he has demonstrated power over others. Which brings us to the third point here, Lamech's distortion of God. He wants the benefits of God without the relationship to God. He claims, he claims that if, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then, then my revenge is seventy-sevenfold. There's no mention of God here, just mentions of his benefits. That if Cain was, was given the luxury of being protected, and if anybody harms Cain for his murder, then God will repay sevenfold. He says, based on, on my murder and potentially other murders, based on my actions, I warrant even greater protection from God. And the implication for us here is that man is degenerating rather than improving. Many seculars would like us to believe that, that mankind is on its way up, that mankind is improving. And yet what we see from Scripture is that man is declining. That man is moving farther and farther away from God, farther and farther away from what he's supposed to be, delving into more and more sin. This passage also gives us a basis for why marriage and life must be protected. That at the very root, at the very beginning of man, we see both of these things being attacked. Both marriage and human life being attacked from the very beginning. The sanctity of both of these institutions being attacked from the very beginning. Now, does anybody pick up on anything significant in what he says about Cain's revenge and how he compares it to his revenge? Anything significant that maybe we take away from that passage there? Any thoughts on him saying that, you know, Cain, Cain, God gives Cain protection sevenfold. God's going to give me protection seventy-sevenfold. How does that does that correlate at all for for something that maybe we pull out and take away from as believers? The the, the wordage here, the wordage here mirrors so strongly what Jesus says in Matthew eighteen. Turn to Matthew eighteen if. You've got your Bibles. Matthew eighteen twenty two. Or we'll start in verse twenty one. Matthew eighteen twenty one. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. See, this is the, the implication here is that our call to forgiveness and restoration supersedes the fleshly desire to retaliate. Let me say that to you again. Our call to forgiveness and restoration supersedes the fleshly desire to retaliate. 
Some of your translations may, seven, may say 70 times 7. The Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates Lamech's poem as saying 70 times 7. The correlation is obvious here. That there, there is a correlation here between what Lamech says, that, that if, if someone harms me, the retaliation will be 77 times greater. 70 times 7. The idea is completion. The idea of that number 7 being used in an extensive way is the idea that full retaliation will happen towards that individual. Jesus portrays something totally different in the New Testament. He says when someone wrongs you, when someone offends you, when someone does something towards you, the mindset is not the retaliation that they deserve. The mindset is instead, I will continue to to take this. I will continue to experience this. I will continue to extend grace and forgiveness to them to the same level that my flesh would say they deserve retaliation. That's the picture that really comes out of Genesis 4 to me. You've got the genealogy. We're we're propelling the story forward. We're moving towards the flood. We see Jesus' genealogy through this, which is so important to his claim to being the Messiah. We see the importance here that that Cain and and his descendants are so much alike. But if if, if we take away anything from this passage, we should take away the, the mindset of Cain and the mindset of Lamech and how similar they are that they, that they don't love other people, they compare themselves to others, they hate other people, they retaliate against other people. And it's so contrary to what we're called to be as Christians. So contrary to what we're called to be as Christians. In 1 John chapter 3, this gives context to the way of Cain that's described here. 1 John chapter 3 verse 11 For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. You could also add there, we should not be like Cain's descendants, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. (coughs) Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit. Whom he has given us. What we see here is a picture of how we're supposed to be. Jesus portrays the idea of forgiveness, but then he demonstrates that forgiveness, right? Like, like he goes to the cross and he dies asking for the forgiveness of his enemies. No retaliation. And he passes that down to his offspring, right? It's not that much later that Stephen... Our, our first recorded martyr is following in the footsteps of his spiritual father now. 
right? And he's dying and he's crying out for the forgiveness of those that are torturing him, that are killing him for his faith. The example set in the New Testament is a far cry from the example that Cain and his descendants set, that, that retaliation is the correct response, that hatred towards others, that jealousy towards others, that, that comparison that leads to destruction that, that's the way of Cain. The, the way pictured that Christ pictures in the New Testament is that we forgive those that do things against us. His instruction to Peter last week was don't compare yourself to others and how God's working in their life. Instead, be faithful to what you're supposed to be doing. Our call to forgiveness and restoration supersedes the fleshly desire to retaliate. It's hard sometimes because of my interaction with with parents at Trinity. I see a vindicative retaliation type mindset so often in regards to how their kids are treated and how they want those kids to be treated in return by me. That that instead of teaching their kids to pray for their enemies, to love their enemies, it's not uncommon for me to have a parent in my office say, I've told my kid if they get hit, they're to hit back. That they're to, they're to retaliate. They're to do things in response to the mistreatment that they get. And I usually kind of back up and say, well, let's, let's, let's think about that. Let's make sure that we're being consistent with Scripture. I don't want your kid to be in harm's way. Um, but I've never had a kid that's retaliated that was really in harm's way. But they're taking that motivation from mom and dad that says, if you're being mistreated, you fire right back. And instead what we see from Scripture here is that, that our fleshly desire is to retaliate. Our fleshly desire is to demand retaliation, and yet what Scripture says is that we have a responsibility to forgive, to forgive. I'm going to lead us in prayer, so I want you to, to bow your heads. But before we pray, I think it's important for us to just pause for a second and, and reflect on this, because it's real easy for us to just say yes, yes, and not really internalize this and examine and say, do I need this? Is this, is this, is this something that's, that's going on in my life that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be reconciled? Um, you know, two different aspects here. You've got Cain, who compares himself to somebody else and allows that to create tension. He compares himself to his brother, compares how God's working in his brother's life, and allows that to become a source of disunity in that family. He gets frustrated with God. He gets frustrated with his sibling. And I have, I have such a fear as we move forward as a church. You know, we're, we're praying for elders. We're praying for deacons. We're praying for people to be sent out from this church. And yet what we have to admit is that not everybody in this building is going to be an elder. Not everybody's going to be a deacon. And not everybody's going to Uganda. There will be some that will be left here in the exact state that they're in right now. And it will be very tempting for some to get, to get caught in the trap of comparison, you know, comparing how someone else is moving forward and, and, and pursuing things and, and, and being recognized by the church, for that to become a point of dissension within our church and to really tear at the unity of our church. Why is so-and-so becoming a deacon? Why is so-and-so being asked to go to Uganda? You know, and, and as I've been thinking about this, I've had to wrestle with this in my own heart because I know it's going to be very difficult for me 
when the time comes to take part of my flock here that God has called me to lead and to hand them over to somebody else and say, you're their pastor now. Like, that's going to be really hard for me. Um, it, it's going to be hard for me to say, this group of people is going to plant a church somewhere else. It's going to be hard for me not to compare myself to someone who becomes that position of authority in their life. And I know it's going to be challenging for others in our church as well. And so I want us to pray against that this morning, that, that we would maintain a proper perspective about some of that. And then also for us to, to just step back for a few minutes and, and internalize and examine whether there's any um, retaliation type feelings that we harbor towards anybody. You know, we can easily say, you know, that, that, that we can identify Lamech's sin here and his poor attitude. And, and so oftentimes we don't recognize similar attitudes in our own heart. Um, and there may be others that, that you need to work things out with in your own life, that, that ex- forgiveness needs to be extended to them, and it hasn't been to this point. Instead, you've harbored bitterness towards them. You've, uh, you've, you've desired retaliation to happen against them, and, and, and it's forgiveness that God may be calling you to this morning towards that individual, a restoration of that relationship. So I invite you to spend some time in prayer individually before I close this out in prayer to to really internalize this and to really wrestle with if any of this is taking place in your life right now, any type of uh, of disunifying type feelings within this church, within uh, relationships outside this church, realizing that, that Christ is set as an example for us, um, and we've seen the bad example here through Cain and his descendants that, that needs to be squashed in our own life if necessary. Lord, we thank you for passages like this that give uh, biblical foundation for why we believe the things that we do about you. That through this account we can see that you are a gracious God and not just hope that you are, but we can see you've revealed yourself that way, that you were gracious to Cain and his descendants, even in the midst of their sin, that you're a, 
a God of, of grace and mercy, and you extended that to them. You allowed them to, to prosper. You allowed them to, to live. Father, I pray that if there's any mindset within us that would view this world as our treasure, uh, that you would remove that from our hearts, that, that we would be reminded that this is not our permanent dwelling place. God, help us to realize that even in the, the pursuit of, of technology, and, and while Cain and his, his family experienced relief from the curse because of technology, that technology does not cure us. That, that this world and, and all the advancements of this world and all the attempts to extend life and to extend the quality of life does not solve the death problem. That we are born into sin and desperately in need of a Savior. And so, God, I pray that we would keep a heavenly mindset while seeking to subdue this earth for your glory. That we would we would work hard, that we would seek to be productive, that we would subdue the earth through the jobs that you've given us, but ultimately that those things would not become our identity. That we would be faithful like Abel to come to you and offer the fruit of our labor back to you as a reminder that you are the source of all goodness in our life. God, I pray that we would be mindful of the attitudes that are portrayed here in this chapter and, and not just be standoffish to, to be judgmental about Cain and Lamech and, and their heart attitude, but instead to, to see that sin is crouching at our door as well if we're not careful. That the enemy would love to destroy the unity of our church. That as we seek to glorify you by, by raising up individuals, by sending out individuals, by, by using the giftedness of individuals, that the enemy would love to, to create jealousy and envy within this church family. The enemy would love to introduce strife into this family. That the enemy would love to, to, to maximize offenses that happen. And God, we recognize that as sinful people that are trying to do life together, there's going to be times where we offend each other and we hurt each other's feelings. And Father, help us to recognize that the enemy would love nothing more than to maximize those hurt feelings, to maximize the offenses to where our response is retaliation versus forgiveness. God, help us to be mindful that sin crouches at the door and we are to master it. God, I pray that you would you would continue an atmosphere and environment of forgiveness here at Sovereign Hope. That we would glory in seeing others used by you. That we would thrive on seeking to meet the needs of others above our own needs. God, that we'd be willing to lay down our lives for each other versus wanting to retaliate for our own life. God, I pray that we would see the example that your son has left for us and that we would, we would follow that example and not be those that, that follow in the way of Cain, that we would be faithful to love the way that you've called us to love. And that through that, God, we, we are desiring to, to be the people that, that we're going to see next week through the line of Seth, people that call upon the name of the Lord, people that, that work hard to do the earth, but do so for your name's sake and not our own name's sake. God, we don't want to build cities that we name after ourselves. We want, to, we want to do a work that draws attention to you and your name. So we pray for that today. We ask for that today. We pray that you would use our church in whatever ways you see fit 
for your glory and honor. We pray that you would protect us from any attempts by the enemy to disunify those efforts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.